Hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle 24's programme all about the built environment and how to make our cities better places to live in. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up... Urban design is a process, it's not a thing, which is why we use many hands, as we call it, many talents to craft and evolve a plan for a place. Cities are better when we all cooperate. This week, we're looking to a new sustainable neighbourhood project in the south of England, encouraging a culture of sharing and putting people first. We also explore cooperative housing in Zurich to find out why this city is the national leader for this particular way of living. And we stop by a new co-living housing project not too far from the Belgian capital that proves that looking good and doing good can go hand in hand. That's all ahead right here on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. We're going to start today's programme right here in the UK. The historic town of Lewis, set within the South Downs National Park, has a rich history of industry and manufacturing. Fast forward to today, and traces of this industrial past can still be found. But how do we turn these neglected brownfield sites into benchmarks for modern, sustainable living? This was one of the questions that prompted Jonathan Smales to turn his attention to property development. A former managing director of Greenpeace UK, Jonathan knows just how important it is to build better neighbourhoods where sustainability, regeneration and healthy public areas take centre stage. This ethos has culminated into the Phoenix Project, a new urban regeneration plan that will transform the area into one of Europe's most sustainable new neighbourhoods. And I'm happy to say that Jonathan joins me now. Jonathan, great to have you here on The Urbanist. Now, first of all, I wanted to talk to you about crossing the line, so to speak, because as somebody who has campaigned on issues, I guess you're now going to be on the other side, developing a site in the most sustainable way you can. So you've moved from Greenpeace. Do you now call yourself a property developer? I don't know what to call myself at this stage, (laughs) but neither, in a way, do I feel I've crossed the line in the sense that planning, designing and building neighbourhoods is our new campaign. I think it's actually one of the most potent things that one can do to build optimism and belief in the things that we believe to be important. Tell us about the site and the ambition of the project. The project's called The Phoenix, and that sounds like an awful brand name for a new neighbourhood, but it's actually the old Phoenix Ironworks in Lewis. And people's image of Lewis is almost of a sort of museum town. It's kind of so beautiful, particularly the high street with its Georgian architecture and its castle on a hill and all of that. But forget that it also was an inland port, a working place. And this was the industrial part of this beautiful town where there were apprentices and forgers and foundries and, you know, it was a dirty, heavy industry and they made rather wonderful things. The site has been effectively redundant for about 20 years, but inhabited by a whole series of artists and creatives and activists of various kinds, some wonderful joiners and carpenters down there. And yet it's one of those classic places that's ripe for regeneration. But we have to go deep and ask ourselves what we mean by that. Well, Lewis is, as you say, an amazing town on the south coast here in England. And it's part of the the country where people get involved in projects. So I know there's been a lot of 
community pressure over the years because people didn't want to see it bulldozed and turned into any other development. So how complicated and tricky has it been bringing along both the planning authorities, the local community? Are you a local? Is that how you got involved? Actually, I do live there. I'm actually a Yorkshireman originally, but my wife is from there and her grandfather was mayor four times. So we're a very establishment Lewis. <laughs> and I love that, you know, when you're in a community meeting and someone goes, oh, you developers from outside coming here with your... And actually, our daughter is fourth generation Lewis. The origin actually is that there was this rather wonderful creative community campaign that rose up in opposition to the previous scheme which got planning consent which was a sort of money-led scheme it was a an international investor and it was a wonderful campaign because they weren't saying no they were saying we just want it to be brilliant in fact their slogan was we want development we just want it to be brilliant the scheme although it got planning was never implemented i think it just wasn't viable thankfully it certainly wasn't very sustainable it had massive underground concrete car park, the embodied carbon in which was phenomenal. Um, They couldn't get it moving. And so we heard that they were about to put it on the market. I'd made contact, having moved to Lewis with this community action group, just to see if I could help in some way, just to see if I could sort of dust off my old campaigning chops. And they said, actually, they're going to sell it. Would you like to work with us on this brilliant thing? And, you know, they all turned up at, literally at the house with bad white wine and invited themselves in. I haven't been able to shake them off ever since. They've been, they've been <laughs> fantastic, actually. The plan is to build 700 homes. You're pre-planning at the moment. You've got the goodwill of lots of people down there. So it looks like it's going to happen. What would be the timescale for building some 700 homes? Yeah, so we would hope to have planning in the summer next year. And, you know, it's a classic brownfield site. It just has a rather beautiful river frontage, about 800 metres long. The challenge with that is that that river floods, it's tidal. You also get flooding that comes off the hills, off the South Downs, because Lewis is nestled in rather beautifully in the South Downs. And so we have to build rain gardens, flood defences, and they're integrated into the building. So those have to go in first. And then the the first phase, designed by three or four different architects, will start in the spring of 2024. The infrastructure works in the autumn next year. So it's all being, I mean, that first phase is being designed in detail now. Everything else is an outline. Well, let's unpack some of the things that you're going to bake into this project. So first of all, of course, the environment and sustainability is, is important to you. But there are words that now drag along lots in their wake. You know, we're, we're talking about a cost of living crisis here in the UK. We're talking about how we use energy. We're talking about access to good homes for everybody, about affordability. How many of these ideals are you trying to juggle with at the same time? Well, all of them, at the risk of sounding trite. I think that that's the only honourable agenda for a large-scale property development these days. So it's not whether, it's how do you do it in practice. And actually part of the answer to that is that you design quite intense urbanism. And one of the challenges with an environmental perspective, or even actually with people that come from a sustainability background, is they often don't take an interest in and certainly don't understand urbanism, and it's the key to the whole thing. So relatively high density, mostly apartments, and the issue is not, you know, whether one has to have that density, the issue is how good can you make it. 
And of course, there's lots of wonderful, inspiring examples around the place. But then there's a renewable energy grid, and our commitment is that that will be more affordable than energy you would buy from a, a normal supplier. There's a mobility services so that you don't have to own a car. They have to be very modern. They have to work. They have to be clean. They have to be excellent, you know, cool vehicles. You can hire an electric cargo bike or an electric Volvo so that when you're needing to journey, you can journey in some comfort in a nice way. A third of the homes are affordable, policy compliant affordable. 500 jobs in construction, 200 apprenticeships because we're building in timber. It's a it's a newish skill to build in the way that we're planning to build. And then there's a whole series of shared living is an important thing, shared public spaces, shared resources, laundrettes, common areas in the urban blocks, shared gardens, which are also rain gardens. So, yeah, we have had to attend to each of those issues. And in design terms, the real challenge, and indeed I think the opportunity, is to integrate those through great design. And when you're talking about this level of best practice, the reason that some other developers don't do it, obviously some are lazy, but many would say it's still expensive to integrate some of this technology into existing projects. And if you do that, then you'll squeeze people out. Somebody's going to have to pay the price for it. But you seem to imagine that you can do all of this and still deliver affordable homes. What are they missing? Is it just coming to maturity, this kind of technology, that you can do it now? I've been at this for 40 years. So I did my first building. It was an animal testing laboratory in Canterbury in Islington for the Greenpeace headquarters. That's how I became interested in all this. And everyone said, oh, what even is a green building? We certainly didn't know. You know, we had to do a lot of work. We hired excellent architects and engineers, one of whom went on to win the Sterling Prize, another is a world-class environmental engineer, did Gardens of the Bay in Singapore. You know, these are talented people, so find the talented people, bake these ideas in right from the very beginning so that the first principles are, are grounded in that way, and then work in what Steve Jobs called deep collaboration. So you have your cost guy, your marketing people, your architects, your engineers, and clan all in a room working out together how to get this thing to tick. And then lots of practical common sense stuff. One of the things I feel, having worked with developers over a long time as a consultant as well, was just often the laziness, actually, was the, you know, they come at it as surveyors and accountants and business people and then rely on their architects to do pretty much everything for them. And it's impossible. It's an impossible task, actually, because so much of it is to do with the culture of the teams and the project management regime and how they prioritise things. And I would also say that there aren't many architects, even today, who are good urban designers. And why would they be? They're not trained in it. And urban design is a process. It's not a thing, which is why we use many hands, as we call it, many talents to craft and evolve a plan for a place. Now, tell me, to live there, you've hinted that you know this is a, an environment where you're going to encourage a sharing culture. Do you think that we as potential residents, tenants, need to shape up as well, that you know we need to rethink what it means to own a home and to be part of a community? Yeah, completely. But why do we make it so difficult for people to feel that way? Because I think we do, in, particularly in new developments, 
So again, if one thinks about that idea from the very beginning, so the design of beautiful shared gardens, and of course, you know, the cooperative movement in Zurich have have done this extraordinary well. What is it? Forty percent of new housing in Zurich is in cooperatives. These are they're not hippies. They're not people who are going to sit around singing kumbaya around a bonfire in the square. These are bankers and lawyers who've worked out that it's actually much more affordable. They can have a very high quality apartment and share space. If you want a big private garden, it's not the place that you would live, but then you wouldn't live in a city, probably, generally speaking. You know, we're surrounded by countryside, we're surrounded by fantastic views. This is an urban place in a small town, and that kind of sharing of entrances, gardens, providing it's done well, so the buildings have soft edges with benches and planting, plenty of places to park your bike, shared storage which is very, everyone, you know, has some old walking boots that they forgot to throw away. Use the roofs, you know, the battle of the roofs for green roofs, solar power and leisure. The views here are extraordinary. So people want to be on there where, where they can. So one's got to factor in all these things. So let's inspire people and then make it really easy and enjoyable for them to live in this way rather than criticise them. It's not a cultural thing. We're not, because we're British, we don't like sharing, which I often hear. Just tell me, I move into my, my new home. How will it feel different? Slightly more generous proportions. Apartments have a bad name outside of Maryland in this country because the new ones are just mean and they really needn't be. They don't need to be big, but the proportions need to be very carefully judged. I think the double aspect, so you'll get light coming in from at least two sides. You'll get airflow through. And then we design to what we call raw and craft. So we think that most people really want to invest in a very good building. They want to feel the bones of it are well judged. And we work in biomaterials, so essentially timber, hempcrete, lots of lovely different types of timbers, so engineered timber from Switzerland or Austria, and then Sussex timber for the panels. And then the, the craft bit is that we don't believe that as developers we should decide what kitchen Andrew Tuck has or bathroom you choose and we'll help you if you like we'll have a series of famous designers design four or five inspiring scenarios we'll even link you to furniture choice through Monocle magazine but the point is it's customer choice it's a grown-up thing we treat customers in in the housing market as if they're sort of cattle and actually you know this is all part of this process that we're trying to inculcate and do you want to be the best development of its kind in Britain? Yeah, I'll settle for that in the first instance, but uh, why stop there? Look, I think you asked me about campaigning at the beginning, and this is our campaign. Our mission as a business is to help shape a new social imagination about what it is to live sustainably and well in the 21st century, and how rather than wait for governments to bring in the regulation, legislation, tax incentives, why don't we tackle these things at the neighbourhood level, regenerate our neighbourhoods, bring people together, because actually the conversations one has in these projects, in communities, are unlike conversations that you ever have anywhere. There's nowhere else to talk about how we might live, how we move around, where do we get our food from, what cafe do you want on the corner? Will you share a bike store with someone? Would you ride a bike if we make it really easy? So it's a wonderful agenda. Jonathan Smales there. Thank you for joining us on The Urbanist. 
Now, as Jonathan mentioned, Zurich has a glowing reputation for its use of cooperative housing. And there's a long history behind the city's use of this model too. To find out more, we enlisted the help of Monocle's Desiree Bandley, who herself lives in one of Zurich's many cooperatives. She sent us this report. No matter which cost-of-living chart you're looking at, Zurich is always near the top. Health insurance and rent are two of the main aspects that people worry about. This is one of the reasons why cooperative housing is on very high demand. Currently, 18% of all the apartments in the city are owned by cooperative housing companies. That is the highest percentage in Switzerland. This means that the owners of the flats do not want to make profit, they only want to cover their costs. Building cooperatives, therefore, see themselves as self-help organizations as they take buildings out of speculation, explains Monika Sutter, vice president of one of the over 50 building cooperatives in Zurich, Rota. Cooperative housing is very popular in Zurich, with many being overrun by requests. The support for non-profit housing in the city has a tradition going back more than 100 years. And it looks like this will stay this way, as they are also anchored in the Zurich Municipality Code. By 2050, the share of non-profit housing in the city should amount to one-third of all flats. And the increase is in urgent need, as rents keep rising and waiting lists keeps growing. The history of cooperative housing in Zurich goes back more than a century. It all started around 1860, when the rapid industrialization took over the city. Zurich quickly became an important transport hub and attracted many workers from rural areas. This led to a housing crisis around 30 years after. With many people crowded together in small flats with no or very little access to water, the outbreak of diseases or social unrest was imminent. The city had to react. In 1892, the first cooperative housing organization was founded initiated by the Young Zurich Tenants Association. The goal was simple but challenging at the same time. Getting away from the power of landowners and the need to take up a mortgage, but at the same time still being able to live in an affordable house. Since then, housing cooperatives are on high demand. And the belief from the citizens that this is the way forward has been confirmed at the ballot box many times. For the first time in 1907, when the citizens agreed to build Limat 1, the first urban housing estate with 225 flats. From then on, the rise of cooperative housing companies hasn't stopped. Especially after the two world wars, there was a wave of construction. It's important to be said that building cooperatives have always, and to this day still are, very careful with their money and only spend money where it's really needed. This can be seen to this day with the residents having fewer square meters per person than they would in a privately rented flat. Building cooperatives also function differently as all its members buy share certificates of the organization. This is on one hand used as capital for the cooperative, but at the same time it puts members in the privileged position of having an actual say in the future of the place they live in. The city and building cooperatives together rent out 23% of all the flats in the city of Zurich. Building cooperatives to this day profit from interest-free loans from the city to assist with purchase of land. They also receive long-term renewable leases on land the city owns. 
Monika Sutton explains that the rent of flats owned by cooperative houses do not go up unless the mortgage will be increased by the cooperative itself. This means that those flats actually become less expensive over time. Building more flats in the city itself is tricky though. If anything, growth is possible through densification. Buying houses in the city of Zurich has become nearly impossible. A perfect example can be given in one of the districts in Zurich, close to the cemetery Sielfeld. A group of houses was on sale. Bank valuation, 12 million. Sold for 24 million Swiss francs. Only for it to be resold shortly after. This kind of speculation is what destroys the housing market and shows why cooperative housing is so needed. This is also the impression Monika Sutter has. As we end our conversation on a sobering point that politicians might need to be more active in helping to ease the current market. Maybe by selling cooperative land, the city only rents its land, very rarely do they sell it, or putting more requirements and demands on new constructions. Overall, building cooperatives are an amazing tool to provide not only affordable rents, but also making sure that there is, and always will be, a certain amount of inclusion in such a fast-growing and changing city like Zurich. Looking back at the many successful years of building cooperatives, one can remain hopeful that they will help shape the future of this city for many years to come. Monocle's Desiree Bandley there. Thank you. Before we go, we wanted to highlight another co-living project that's caught our eye, this time in the city of Leuven, not far from the Belgian capital of Brussels. We spoke to one of the architects behind the project to find out more about their studio, this project, and why co-living could make for a brighter future for many of our cities. My name is Peter Thibault. I am an engineer architect and I'm one of the two founding partners of Office U Architects for Urbanity, our architectural studio based in Brussels, Belgium. We feel that being an architect, we have a big social responsibility to find solutions for complex social and ecological challenges we encounter. So the Office U, the U stands for Urbanity which is, of course, living in a city or a village context, but also everything that comes with it, everything that enables people to live in this context, but most of all, also a way of living together in a sustainable way. So this word is quite important throughout our work because it defines what kind of projects we do, where they are located, and also how we shape them. So we will always search for an added value in each of our projects, looking for sustainability as a whole, with also big attention for the human scale. In 2015, a design competition was launched for this co-housing project, the SES, on a plot on the edge of Leuven, a small village near Brussels, where a group of people was offered a plot by the city of Leuven in a ground lease which is quite special in Belgium, where most of the time you have to buy the plot to construct. 
but the big condition by the city was that it had to be an exemplary project for sustainable building and living. It's a bit our Belgian version of the BRIAM, more international standard of scoring buildings on how sustainable they are. So the project itself consists of two compact housing buildings, each with six apartments and also the renovation of an old cafeteria, giving its name to the project, the name of the SES, now hosting also all the collective functions to the co-housing project. It was an open competition that we participated. It was actually also the start of our office. We were in no office yet, so it's our first project, which is also quite special. And we were chosen there because innovative solutions for privacy and collectivity, the integration of the project within the neighborhood, and also the special attention for global sustainability. Some of the very specific design aspects is, of course, when building for a group of people, a co-housing group, is rather different than when you build for a developer who is constructing 12 apartments without any knowledge of the future inhabitants. Now, it was really a design together with the future inhabitants that had also a very big impact on how this building came to be. They were involved quite a lot from the early start and enabling them, of course, to shape their building, their project, but also confronting them with the impact of personal choices on the project as a whole. We organized several workshops, first on a bigger scale, looking at the project as a whole, how circulation would work, where the volumes would be placed, which kind of collective functions we would provide, and then more zooming in to what apartments would people get? Where would they live? Would it be ground floor, first floor? What shape? What orientation? Also with a question of accessibility, but really giving everybody its place in the project. And then in the end, zooming in on the unit itself, how it could be designed specifically for this person. We see a growing trend in collective housing, especially co-housing projects. And I think a big reason for that is the lack of available plots, of course, the lack of space. People need to live smaller. People are used to having a big house and now they have to live smaller, but are then therefore trying to find a way how to combine a smaller footprint, a more compact house with the luxury of having more space. And that's why co-housing is a very good solution to that by sharing certain functions like an atelier where you can work on the bike, a guest room that is maybe only a few times a year being used but takes a lot of space in a private house. All these kind of elements can be shared and give a very big quality of life to these people without having to invest on it on a private basis. I think it's also a good thing for cities to invest in these kinds of projects because it's often a struggle cities have with keeping families in the cities. It happens a lot in Belgium. Young people are living in cities because it is convenient for work. There's a lot of activity. You're very close to culture and, and leisure. But as soon as they get children, they move out of the city because they need different things. They need a garden for the children to play in. They need more space for the children to play or to have a children's party. 
And these are elements that are more difficult to find in a city context, since it is very difficult to find big houses here. But with this kind of projects, they can be combined. So it would be possible to stay in city context and yet have all these qualities that people look for in villas outside of the city. So I, I do think it is a very good tendency for people to find these new ways of living together. Peter Thiebaud of Office U Architects there. My thanks to him. And that's all for this week's episode of The Urbanist. Today's programme was produced by Carl Rebello and David Stevens. And David also edited the show. And to play you out this week, here's Ike and Tina Turner with Working Together. Thank you for listening, city lovers. Together we can help better things.